We are looking at James chapter 5 this morning. Uh, It's about the subject of waiting, and uh, we tend to struggle with waiting on two fronts. Uh, One is uh, we're really good waiters, okay? Uh, That's what we sometimes call procrastination, and uh, we can just sort of wait indefinitely. Uh, That's not the kind of waiting that, that James is talking about. It's more talking about the other side where we just can't wait. Um, it's something that the Christmas season seems to bring to mind in many ways. Uh, there are reminders everywhere we look of uh, how to count down the days until that day comes. The kids, the news, uh, the businesses, Advent calendars, and the number of chocolates that are left. We have approximately 16 days, if you are wondering, until uh, Christmas arrives. Um, but none of these things uh, really have the ability to make it go any faster. We just have to wait. And so I've titled this message, uh, Why Wait? I think James has quite a lot to teach us here. And so uh, let's look at that now. Uh, James chapter 5, uh, verse 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Almighty God, Lord, uh, this is your word. We thank you for it. We thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit inspiring it to James and Uh, We pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work in us to illuminate it to our minds and hearts and make us to know you more, ourselves more, Lord, and uh, that you would encourage us by it, that you would shape how we uh, witness who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Waiting is hard. It is in my family, and, and that's right on down to the dog. Um, I love our dog. Uh, I, I'm allergic to dogs, but uh, this dog, he just is an unfiltered uh, picture of a human being, in particular maybe a, a man. Um, uh, his fears are right there. His desires are right there. Um, he's fixed on something and unshakable. So um, I wish I was there. My family was driving into a park, um, Twix is his name, spots a uh, squirrel off in the distance. Nobody else sees it, but Twix is trained on uh, that squirrel, uh, still moving. Um, the window's down about halfway. Twix seizes the moment, jumps right out the window, and is off to the races. It's much like my uh, son, one of my sons, uh, Jenny was uh, trying to sneak a present into the house here recently, just this past week. Uh, so he notices, 
he quickly runs ahead to inform that child that uh, this operation is going on and, and lets everybody else in the house know that this operation is going on. And then he organizes a surveillance project to figure out where this thing is going to be hidden. It's beautiful, right? Not only can he not wait, but he can't stand for anybody else to wait. Uh, so thoughtful. And um, I wonder if you can relate. I can relate. Waiting has a way of agitating us, and it's all around us. We have to stop uh, for stoplights on those people in the checkout line that are ahead of us, for our computers, for the microwave, for spring, warmth, the sun. It's too long, right? And in the less frivolous arena, we have to wait to hear back on college applications. We have to wait to see whether that person we're really interested in is going to respond to our text. We have to wait to see if that house is going to sell. We have to wait on that baby to come home. And um, on the more serious note still, we have to wait for that relationship that seems like it's in a perpetual state of conflict to turn a corner. We have to wait for that wandering son or daughter to come back, or the pain of the holiday reminder of all the losses that we have suffered in past holidays to stop haunting us. We have to wait for the active pain of sickness or abuse or depression to lift. Waiting's all around us, and so many times it's not only hard, but it hurts. And so why? Well, not necessarily because we're in pain, but because on the other side of our waiting, life is better. Don McCrory was the one who shared that profound insight with me, and it's why it's so hard to wait. It feels like the very thing that would make life better right now is being withheld from us. It's like an unjust deprivation, an unnecessary agony. Or in the midst of suffering, it can feel something like torture. And perhaps even more so if you're one of those people that believes in an omniscient and sovereign God. After all, if he, if he doesn't know what's going on, or if he doesn't have the power to do something about it, well, well, who can blame him? But on the other hand, if he does, well then why on earth doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he give us that better life now? Or at the very least, why doesn't he stop the pain? almost feels cruel, and yet without even the slightest equivocation, James commands this church, verse 7, to be patient or to wait. And to that, we can't help but ask why. It's a valid question, but James first addresses the how. And so, point one, how to wait. He says, verse 7b, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The way the farmer waits is with understanding, resignation, and a sense of expectancy. One of the hardest things about waiting is that it won't end when we want it to end. It's proof that there are limits on our power. That despite what we've invested in something, the end depends on other things, things that we can't control, things that have the power to undermine whatever we've invested. 
This is what the farmer understands. And the Israelite farmer in particular, that's why James gives that well-known reference, at least to his original audience, to the early and late rains. It's because in ancient Israel, crops gave their increase, not ultimately because the farmer irrigated them or the farmer protected them, but because the early spring rain came and gave germination to the seeds, and the late summer rain came and gave them that fruit-bearing boost before the harvest, or it didn't. And those crops died. He understood that he was at their mercy, no matter how much he might want to force it, to go early, to find a workaround or accelerate the process, that wouldn't work. Why? Because he understood that what was happening while he was waiting was essential to the production of what he was waiting for. And in that sense, not only did he resign himself to wait for it patiently, but he looked forward to what was on the other side with expectancy. See, farmers differ from hunter-gatherers in that they're not just wandering about in the hope that something might come, but they're expecting something to come. They believe that in due time, their crop will yield the precious fruit that they've been waiting for. Or to put it in a different way, they're optimistically and confidently anticipating that there will be a reward or relief or something better on the other side of their waiting. And so should we. Or as James puts it in verse 8, you also, or you likewise, be patient. And to that end, he continues, establish your hearts. It's to say, dwell on these things. Fortify your hearts with an understanding that there are things beyond your power, things that are essential for the production of what you're waiting for that happen while you wait, and that good things Worth it things are on the other side of your waiting. And why? Well, because waiting, and I think you know this, is a very fertile context for temptation and sin. That's why James follows this up in verse 9 with a prohibition against grumbling. It's because Grumbling is where our hearts go in the straitjacket feeling of waiting. We complain, we protest, and we sin. And the longer it is forced upon us, the more extreme we get. We can start to look like a toddler in a tantrum. And why shouldn't we? After all, in the face of the unfair deprivation of what could make our life better now, or the torture of unnecessary suffering, Don't we deserve to lash out at whoever or whatever is withholding that fuller life or relief from us? Well, normally, just like that child, we think we do, and and so we do. And we don't often stop there. There's, There's something about that constraining feeling that makes us desperate to exercise freedom and control somewhere, somewhere else, if we can't do it there, if if. If we're going to be made to suffer deprivation in one area, we do everything we can to make up for it in other areas. That's why some call idle hands the devil's workshop. 
And so James reminds us that we don't have to. He says, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. It's a good example because the prophets endured unquestionably hard lives and no doubt incredible temptation to fold. God actually comforted the prophet Jeremiah with these words, I made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. In other words, things were so bad that the Lord actually promised Jeremiah that he would protect him against the very people that were supposed to be protecting him. But even in those extraordinarily difficult circumstances, they, the prophets, verse 11, remained steadfast, It's to say that they stayed the course or they patiently endured despite the suffering. And that's how we ought to wait as well. It's to persevere. But why should we resign ourselves to wait through suffering? Why should we look forward expectantly when it feels like somewhat unfair that we have to wait in the first place? And when oftentimes, as we, as we proceed through that waiting, there's so little encouragement to continue waiting. Point two, why wait? Probably notice that the answer to that question or the why permeates this whole passage. It's like a grammatical period behind every single description of the how. In verse eight, the why is because the coming of the Lord is at hand. In verse 9, it's because the judge, who is the Lord, is standing at the door. In verse 11, it's because we consider those blessed by the Lord who remain steadfast. And in verse 11b, it's because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You can probably see the theme here. The ultimate why behind every how is the Lord. And that goes as well for the therefore in verse 7. That therefore is important because that's pointing to the very basis for everything James is saying here. And so just think about that in particular. In the preceding passage, James describes a heart-wrenching scene. The wealthy and powerful around these Christians is persecuting them with seemingly no restraint. They're stealing their wages. They're slandering them. They're living in luxury while they live in squalor and and even murdering some of them. To make matters worse, it's been going on for some time. They've been crying out to the Lord for relief for a while, and yet there isn't any. And it doesn't seem like anyone even knows or cares. It feels hopeless. It's an extraordinarily difficult place to wait. But into this... James sounds like a raging fire. He doesn't say, man, tough luck, or or you guys need to fight back or run, but instead he's so convinced that a correction to their circumstances is coming that he actually takes to scolding their oppressors. He says in verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so why? Why does James go here? Well, it's because James knows that the Lord is coming. And that, 
for him, is singularly synonymous with everything that they're hoping for. The Lord is coming means that justice and reward are on their way. Relief and understanding and a glory so great, so extensive that it will make all their past experiences of waiting seem like a light and momentary affliction. It's like Jesus' encouragement in John 16, 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what James is leaning on. That's why he says, verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. It's because the promise of the Lord's coming both justifies our waiting and gives us the courage and confidence to wait how we ought to wait. And that's what we need to take away from this. The promise of Christ's coming ought to transform Christians into confident waiters. And so is that you today? I don't think it is, and it's, it's not me either. We might do all right sometimes, but oftentimes we look as angry and anxious and impatient as the next guy. We're annoyed by almost any obstacle in our way, and we scream foul at even the prospect that we might have to wait. How we wait in this way ends up revealing quite a lot about what or who we're really waiting for. You see, waiting will always be an infuriating experience to the non-Christian. It's simply a reminder that they are not the center of the world, that they don't have control, that their life and future is dependent on forces beyond them. And as a result, the circumstance of their waiting gives birth to all manner of anxiety and anger and self-righteous indignation. How dare you make me wait? But oftentimes, to our shame, it does the very same thing in us. It reveals in that way how fickle or shallow our faith in the Lord really is. It reveals that we're more fair-weather Christians than all-weather Christians, that we're for the Lord if and when His desires happen to line up with ours, but when they don't, we're looking elsewhere quickly. It's a little convicting, and it ought to be, because the Lord we claim is all too often missing from our waiting. And in his absence, we grumble together with the godless and we sin with an embittered sense of entitlement against our God, his people, and his world. And for this, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian acting like a non-Christian, we need to repent. This kind of impatience is sin. And so let's resolve to confess it as sin and turn to the Lord for forgiveness and help to grow. But it's in this area of growth, quite wonderfully, that James gives us even more encouragement. It's what he's capturing in that final note with his reference to Job. You see, Job endured excruciating suffering too. He was both tempted and assaulted by the devil. His family was murdered. All his earthly wealth and health was stripped away. His friends accused him. And when he cried out to the Lord, seemingly with almost no end, with a why, with a how long, with even just an end to his misery, there was a silence for what seemed like a really, really long time. 
And then even when the Lord answers, it wasn't with the precision that Job had been looking for. But you see, we as the audience also know that that's not all that's going on in Job's life. It's the surreal literary quality of the book. While Job was prevented from discerning the larger purposes of his suffering, how long he may have to wait for relief, or if there would ever be any, or whether the Lord was out there or cared or heard, or if there was any significance to the life that he was living out there in the wilderness. The audience knows the answers to all of these. They get to peek behind the curtain, and it's a marvelous scene. Because what they see playing out in Job's life is a cosmic battle between spiritual forces, a proof for the ultimate sovereignty of God, even over Satan and the forces of evil, and that God knows about our suffering, about Job's suffering, hears every cry, is near, cares, has the power to intervene, and desires to usher in relief and deliverance to end his waiting. But God exercises patience, just like the farmer. He's after accomplishing even greater things. And that's good news. There's something else here that's even maybe, maybe even more remarkable, more encouraging, I think. It's what James is getting at with his reference to Job's steadfastness. That note would have been a puzzling note to James's audience. You see, they know that James, I mean, that Job did uh, show a great deal of strength in his long suffering. But they also know that Job buckled there. In the space of his waiting, he despaired. He begged for death and questioned why he had ever been born. And in response, the Lord rebuked him. In other words, his steadfastness is a sort of steadfastness. And this is precisely what James wants his audience to remember. He says in verse 11b, you have heard, you know of the steadfastness of Job, the less than perfect steadfastness of Job. And you have seen, you know the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful What he's getting at is the good news of both the Lord's presence in and response to Job's waiting, the end of it, and his weakness in waiting. He's something like a parent bearing with his impatient children in a worship service. They can't quite understand the why. Or they're just plain rebelling against it because they don't like the why. But the parent knows They understand, they hear, and they care for them. And so they order their continued waiting for a greater good, even if the child can't quite see it in that moment. And until that good is fully realized, they graciously continue to bear with the impatience of that child. That's what James wants us to remember about Job. It's that even in the weakness of our waiting, God has purposed to show us compassion and mercy that exceeds our weakness. It's that our God does know and hear and care. He does have the power to intervene, but he has ordained our waiting not for our deprivation or torture, but to accomplish a more ultimate good. 
And in that space of our waiting, the until then, he has both shown and promised that he will be with us. In other words, he will be compassionate towards us. He will suffer with us, nurturing us, carrying us, and with all mercy, picking us back up again and again and again when we fall. This is the beautiful Lord on whom we wait. And as we look to him and for him, he won't necessarily erase the hardness or the hurt, but he will transform how we wait from an angry anxiety to a confident and expectant hope. It's this, that the psalmist of 130, Psalm 130, is a wonderful example. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, his promises. I hope My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, that forever patient, enduring love, and with him is plentiful redemption, excessive redemption. And he will redeem Israel. He will redeem you from all your iniquities. Praise God that's true. May he come quickly. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we thank you that at just the right time, Jesus came. We thank you, Lord, that you are a patient God, that in your patience, Lord, you are accomplishing all your good, awesome purposes. And Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us. And we pray, Lord, that in our times when it is hard to wait, we pray, Lord, that you would give us that peace that surpasses understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would give us great faith to trust you, to look to you. And in that space, Lord, you would turn our waiting from an anxious entitlement to, to Lord, confident, expectant hope, because our Lord is coming, and we know he is coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you